So we are going to be in Second Peter chapter two, beginning at verse four. But I would like you to also stick your finger in Genesis six, verse one. We're going to be interchanging between those two passages today, um, back and forth. And so I'd like you—I don't want you to be sort of stumbling through to try to find them in the moment. So I'll give you the time now. So Genesis six and Second Peter two four. That those will line up together. Alright, as our custom, let's stand and read both passages, please. Beginning in verse 4 of 2 Peter chapter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did, not, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of, a, of the ungodly. Move to verse 9. That the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Genesis 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he, is, he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on those earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men of renown. Sorry, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil only continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things, and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time, and Noah walked with God. And he became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the Lord was, the earth was corrupt in the sight of the God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come to you... Um, and uh, in awe and respect of your faithfulness to people like Noah and his generation, of his family underneath him, and uh, what you did in terms of preserving them. And we understand the, the parallel that because we've placed our faith in you, we are preserved and have the right to go to glory and be in relationship with you because of your son, Jesus Christ. We see the parallels, we understand the parallels. But we want to talk today about uh, the other side of the coin, which people who haven't placed their faith in you, what happens to them, and, and why you bring about judgment in the course of time. It's a sensitive topic, and it's an important topic, but we, we do have to talk about it. And because we preach expositionally, I don't get to pick and choose passages. They come as we come in an, in an order, and we don't skip things here. We just deal with them. So I pray for your spirit's uh, guidance in this, because it is a sensitive topic and an important one. I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I know through your spirit you will help me 
uh, relay truth in a clear and concise way. And we want to thank you for our family here. In Christ's name, amen. Before I actually get into the meat of the passage today, I want to clear up a miscommunication I had with you last week regarding the, of which line the sons of God were from. If you remember the conversation, I had mentioned that uh, there's some within the Christian community that believe that the sons of God that we read in Genesis 6 are not angels like I had believed, uh, but they were actually human in origin. And I gave some confusion as to which line of descendants they came from, whether it was Seth or Shem. The answer is Seth. Okay. And the, the idea is this, is that uh, these righteous men from Seth's line, these Sethites, as I, I guess you could say, are called sons of God. And they are... Um, they're righteous descendants that come from the line of Seth, and they, are, they were people who believed in God and adhered to his commandments. As opposed to the daughters of men, who were from Cain's line, and they represent unrighteousness. And so over the course of time, these righteous sons of Seth go and start uh, losing their faith in God, and they start to uh, mingle with the, and intermarry with these uh, Canaanite women, and obviously blur the lines of righteousness and unrighteousness, and by the time this occurs, it gets so rampant that God then destroys the world through that, um, that uh, corrupt line. Uh, I don't believe this is actually what's going on here for many reasons, and we discussed a little bit last week why, and we can discuss again this week why in the sermon if we have to, because we are going to have to re-talk about this uh, event one more time. But that's the, how the story goes from many Christians within the community. Um, about how they view the sons of God here, and I thought I'd just clear that up for you. So let's dive into our passage. You remember last week that we looked at five characteristics that made up false teachers. There was their sphere of influence, which was amongst the people. There were their secret tactics, which were, they came into the church subtly, and they would introduce their, their, their deception very carefully, and they weren't overt um, in the way they preached heresy. Uh, they have a, had a surprising success in the church. Uh, many would follow after them, Peter said. Uh, they have a sustaining motive, which is money. They're in it for the cash. They're in it for greed. And lastly, and fifthly, basically, uh, Peter reminds us that these men will come to a sad end. They, they will be judged for uh, their ministry and the way they preached heresy, uh, took moral liberties with the gospel, and uh, basically preached falsehood concerning Jesus Christ. And to drive home this point, Peter uses three illustrations from the Old Testament as people who had been judged in the past for this kind of thinking and living. And he uses the examples of the fallen angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the account that we'll be looking at this morning, which is the people in the days of Noah. And Peter makes it clear in chapter 2, verse 5, that he did not preserve that world. In fact, he says here, I did not spare, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world. The question is, why? Why come to that uh, degree of punishment? Uh, or what was going on in Noah's day that made God take action? Obviously, they're mimicking the false, uh, false teachers and the way they're living and, and promoting uh, their, their heresy. But was there something bigger going on? Uh, was, like, so it was so pervasive that God had to wipe them out. And I believe there was. And, uh, and, and I think Peter is going to give us a clue, two clues in his passage about what was going on. And uh, Genesis 6 is going to give us another two clues of what was going on. Now, Peter summarizes it in one word. He says, he says this, He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. 
Here's, he says, here's the reason why he brought the flood. They were ungodly. Well, it's a pretty generic word for us because um, we, we get the idea what that might look like. You know, in, uh, it means to be, in the Greek, uh, to be sinful or wicked. Uh, but again, this description is generic for us. You know, in what ways were they sinful and wicked? And so we're going to see these examples in the passages today. So turn with me to Genesis 6, verse 5, and we're going to look at the first reason why God decided to judge the world. And I call this their pervasive evil intent. The first reason he was going to remove them was their pervasive evil intent. Look at verse 5 with me. He says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I find this to be an interesting verse because here we see that what God was judging in Noah's day was more than just external action. He saw inside them that their thoughts and their heart were evil continuously. So it wasn't just what was going on on the outside that God saw. It was what was going on on the inside that he saw. And when he looked at their hearts, he saw nothing but perpetual evil intent. Now I started to think about this this week. Why would God be so concerned about that? What's going on inside more than, just as much as what was going on outside? And then I was reminded of Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. It's the determining course of your life. What's in your mind and in your heart is ultimately what's going to be reflected by the, in, in your actions. And then I thought, Jesus spoke about this. Remember Matthew 5.19? Sorry, 15.19? He says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. Now, remember when Jesus said this. This was a debate he was having with the Pharisees over ceremonial washing of the hands before you eat meals. And they were on to him that his disciples didn't wash their hands. Because they were worried that that would defile a person. And Jesus says, you've missed it. You've missed completely what's going on. It's not what you eat. It's not the dirt from your hands that goes in your food. Then what you eat that makes you defiled. It's actually what's in your heart that makes you defiled because it comes out in these types of behaviors. Change the heart, you change the behavior. And I would suggest this is important for us because, as we all know, um, a lot of the, the, the sin that we end up in in the large, sort of like the bigger picture, starts off small. Doesn't it? Do you think anyone who has uh, lost their family in their home over gambling, lost their family over adultery, uh, lost their family over alcoholism, destroyed their career out of a fit of rage of murder, do you think any of them in their high school days when they sat before their guidance counselor, when they're sharing their dreams with them, or their youth pastor, or whoever they're speaking to, would ever have thought this would have ended up in their life? Nobody in those camps say, I can't wait to be that alcoholic. I can't wait to be that gambler. I can't wait to commit adultery. All these things. None of them. Because, again, it starts off with these little implants in the heart and in the mind. And over time, as you embrace them, they shape your character and shape your behavior. And before you know it, years later, you're, you're like, what happened to me? No doubt this started that way in the people of Noah's day. 
No doubt their attitudes were similar to the young people that just think, I'm invincible. And they had no idea how those little decisions and what was coming into their hearts and minds were going to impact them as adults. No idea. And they had no idea that their lives were going to come to a tragic end through a flood of all things. So the question for us is, are we guarding our minds? Are we guarding our hearts? Are we protecting what comes in? Or are we right now slowly compromising in truth that God has instilled in us and because we have this attitude, well, it's not that really big of a deal. I'm stronger than this or I'm, I know I can overcome this. I'll encourage you to remember the verses from Proverbs and the words of Jesus because the behavior that you exhibit ultimately starts in the heart and in the mind. But we have a merciful Father, a merciful God. All we have to do is confess and repent and He wipes our slate clean. The second reason that uh, God took out the world was violence. Extreme, pervasive violence. Look at verse 11 and 13. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. 13. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. We clearly get a picture of what life, life was like in the days of Noah here. It was extremely barbaric times. There was no regard for one another or the value of human life. Now, based on the description of these people, this was not a small pocket of individuals, like a little tribe here, a little tribe there. This was a pervasive uh, violence throughout the whole world. Notice the, the two times he says the word filled. The earth was filled with violence. The earth was filled with violence. So it's mass spread, spread massively throughout the, the Mediterranean and unknown world back then. And this is the main emphasis in the passage as to why God destroyed it. Of all the issues, that's the main one that he highlights as the reason why he destroyed the world. Now the question is, why would God care so much about violence? Why? There's a number of ways we can answer that, probably. I'm going to answer it very simply from Genesis 9-6. After the flood has happened, and uh, Noah sacrificed animals to the Lord, and a new covenant has started... He, God makes this declaration in 9.6. He says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For, here's a substantiation for why you take another person's life, he kills another. For in the image of God he made man. So, why the reason again for capital punishment to be executed? For he's made in the image of God. That's the reason why God is so hopping mad at violence. There's much debate about what this means to be made in the image of God. And I'm prepared for that if you'd like to discuss that in dialogue. But today, in this moment, it's not the time to get into what it means to be image bearers. But I will give you one thing. We can see, we can see from this God standpoint, that there's an inherent and intrinsic value to humans that He places on us above all other aspects of His creation. He says, you can take another person's life and commit, do capital punishment when they take, uh, um, when they're unjust in the way they take someone else's life because you're an image bearer. 
So God clearly sees us as having intrinsic value as human beings, as image bearers of God. Plants don't bear this image. Even animals don't bear this image. And I know a lot of you love your, your dogs and your puppies and your cats. They don't have the intrinsic value and do not bear the image of God the way humans do. Now we can see this practically from God's viewpoint, how much value we have compared to the rest of creation. We are the only ones that can communicate through prayer. We're the only ones who can read His Word. We're the only ones that can confess sins. Animals don't confess, they don't pray, they don't communicate, they don't have a deep desire for a relationship with the Lord. They don't need it. We're the only ones, humans, are the only ones morally accountable. We're declared unrighteous or righteous in the Bible. Plants and animals are never declared unrighteous or righteous in the Bible. There's no need to because there's no moral compass to an animal from God's point of view. We're the only ones that can be indwelt by His Holy Spirit. And we're the only ones that pass from this world to the next in terms of a transition of soul. I, think, I do believe there'll be animals in heaven, and I've got my reasons for that. And I do believe there'll be plants and trees and the new earth and new heavens. But it won't be a transition. So that your dog that dies today, your dog, you won't see him again in heaven. There might be a dog there in heaven, but it won't be your dog. But you will see a transition from one human being to another. But we can see the intrinsic value of us being image bearers from our viewpoint as well. There's a written law code in our hearts that say that all human life is valuable beyond anything else. This is a crazy story. It was one of my most uh, fascinating conversations. I had a Buddhist friend um, about a year ago. We're sitting in brown sugar having a dialogue. And he comes from a mindset that everything is one, right? So animals, gods, plants, we're all one, we're all equal, and we're all of equal status and value. And he was trying to convince me that, that this was the case. And I looked over at him and I said, John, I said, you don't even believe that. He was like, yeah, I do. I said, no, you don't believe that. I can prove it to you. I said, if you went in a, your car this today after we left, and you were driving down the street, and you ran over a dog, and you killed it, I said, I, I promise you this. You'd feel really bad about it. You might even f shed a few tears. You, you would even probably want to feel terrible about having to contact the owner. I said, it might linger with you for two, three days, but then over time, you'd get over it, and you'd move on. I said, if you ever ran over a kid on that same street, it'd be with you for the rest of your life. And he just stared at me and didn't have a thing to say. I said, not only this, our justice system believes this. If you run over a dog, I said, you'll never serve jail time. You run over a kid and they deem you uh, irresponsible, you will be in jail. Our secular atheist governments believe that there's more intrinsic value to a human being. Why? Because we're image bearers of God. It's written in our hearts. We may not identify ourselves in that way or understand ourselves that way, but God's put that in us. So from God's standpoint, standpoint and our own human perspective, there's an intrinsic value to human life. And when we take it violently, God says, I've had enough. And they were pervasively doing it in the culture. It was everywhere. It was filled with fines. Not hard for the application to see in our day, is it? I mean, it's pretty clear. I don't have to convince you that we're living in an increasingly violent world. Now, I don't believe we're in the same place as Noah. 
I know there might be debate over that, but I don't think we're, I think we're violent and we are horrific in many ways. I don't think we're filled to the same degree, you know, because in Okotoks we're not experiencing that, in Calgary we're not experiencing that to the same degree, but we are progressively moving towards those days. Evidence in the increased acts of terrorism, presence of groups like ISIS, a mass shooting, civil wars, genocide, uh, widespread persecution against Christians in the millions. There's more people that have died in the 20th century than the first 19 put together. And that's not my stat. This comes from commentaries I read with people who researched this. But I want to speak to you about one area that our culture and world at large has completely turned a blind eye to in terms of defining violence. We've turned a blind eye to de defining violence. Abortion. It's a sensitive topic, I know. But as Christians, we need to be aware of this. These stats will stagger you. They will stagger you. This is stats that I took from abortion73.com. And I want to go through Canada stats, U.S. stats, and worldwide stats. In the Canadian stats, this is just for the last six years. 11, 108,000. 2012, 100,000. 2013, 102,000. 2014, 100,000. 215, 100,000, and 216, 97,000. That's 600,000 people in six years in Canada. Just to give you an idea, the Saddle Dome fits 20,000 people. Every year in Canada, five times the population of Saddle Dome were aborted in Canada. Winnipeg. Pardon me? Oh, is that right? Okay. Every year. Okay. USA, from 1973 to 2011, 53 million babies. 2014, 926,000. 2015, 913,000. 216, 892,000. 217, 879,000. That's 57 million in 45 years, children. Now, just to give you an idea, if you, if you just take 2014, 15, 16, 17, they're averaging about 100 grand a year, right? Or a million a year. This is those six years on that. Six years, okay? That's six million people. Do you know how many people died in the Holocaust? In six years, from 1939 to 1945? Six million Jews. Six million Jews. And we do six million in the United States in six years. And you know what's crazy? We look up the, I looked up the homicidal stats for the world. They, did, uh, they only had 600,000, uh, around 600,000 known homicides, in, in violent homicides in the world. Uh, in 2015, so we're doing we're doing uh, um, uh, 600,000 in homicides worldwide, and we're doing a million a year in the states just in babies. <laughs> it's, it's equivalent to the Holocaust, and those stats aren't put in the uh, in the world stats and homicides because they don't count it as homicide. How about worldwide? According to the United States, the reports in the United Nations in 2013, nine countries have higher reported rates than the United States. So if you're at a million a year, and there's nine countries higher than the USA. And some of the countries are like Bulgaria and Romania. They have smaller populations in the US. China is the world leader in excess of 13 million per year. Some believe up to 23 million per year. 30 million people live in Canada. Three years that wipe out Canada. How do we get away with this? Because we justify it on a technicality. We redefine life. We redefine life. It's not, it's not living inside, it's only living when it's outside. 
You know, child sacrifice was the major reason why God brought Israel to a captivity in Babylon. I'll read. I'll go back to that. Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel. Listen, I'm going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. For they have forsaken me and made this place into a place of foreign gods. They have burned incense in it to gods that they neither they nor their ancestors or the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built up high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it ever enter my mind. Why are people doing this? The USA, these are the stats of the clinic, 19% done having kids, 23% can't afford a baby, 25% not, really, not ready for a child. thing about it is, things like fetal abnormality and the woman being in physical health and danger are on that list. They mark around 1% of the abortion cases, and sometimes less than 1%. It's just purely, I didn't want to get pregnant, and I'm not ready to have a kid. Peter's message, this ungodly behavior will not go unpunished. God's not idle, he's not asleep, there will be retribution. Now, I want to say this. This is important because I actually know a number of women who've had abortions. I know them personally. And some have become Christians. I want to say this, as sensitive as the topic is, and as serious as it is, there can be forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. There's no sin except blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, which means to reject His offer of salvation. There's no sin that can't be forgiven. So let the punishment fall on Jesus Christ for that and not on yourself at the day of judgment. Mercy can be found in Him. That's how much He loves us. The third category in which uh, God was hopping mad at the world was rampant sexual immorality. Turn with me back to 2 Peter chapter 2. Notice in verse 10, Notice in verse 10 why God did not spare the ancient world and brought judgment upon them. He did so because they indulged the flesh in its corrupt desires. They indulged the flesh in its corrupt desires. I like the NLT version. It says, God brought judgment on those who followed their own twisted sexual desire. So what would this have looked like? Well, we know God's original design for sexual intimacy. It's a husband and a wife, or a man and a woman, in a marital union that's committed. That's where he wants life and sex to happen, within a marital union um, between the top two loving partners, female and male, and that's where he wants that to occur. So therefore, if you're following your own twisted sexual desire, it has to be anything but that. Anything outside of that. So, by by deduction, we can say this. There have been tons of fornication going on, sex before marriage. Obviously, by the abortion rates, by the way, 86% of those abortions were unmarried women. 86%. So again, just to show you that outside of God's design. So, that's one area of fornication. The other area is when a husband and wife cheats on one another, adultery, that have been wild orgy parties, uh, widespread homosexuality, and so forth. 
But I want to suggest one other perversion of sexual relationships that was going on that was unique to their time that's not present today. And that's back to last week's sermon, this relationship between angelic beings and humans. And Jude describes the events this way. And angels who do not keep their own domain, but abandon their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way, as these indulged in gross morality and went after strange flesh. So the angels are compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah, the major sin of homosexuality, they went after strange flesh. In what way did angels go after strange flesh? They went after human beings. That's the sons of God passage we looked at last week in Genesis 6 and read this morning. So he compares the gross immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah to that of the angels and the way they related to human beings. And many believe within the Christian community, that's why the human race was so contaminated. The human race, the DNA line, got so contaminated and it got so pervasive that God had to wipe them out. Because this was not normal. This was not his intention for human, the human race. Now, there's a really cool verse. Uh, uh, you probably flipped to Second Peter, but in Genesis 6, verse 9, it describes Noah as being blameless there. Blameless in his generation. Now, that's a really interesting word. Uh, the original language in Hebrew is to be perfect or without defect. So some believe um, this is actually a comment on his moral standing. To be, because in the Bible, blameless is actually used to describe one's moral character before God. Abraham was told to walk, be, be, walk blameless before him, meaning upright in moral standing and the right ways of worship. That is one way the word can be used. But what's interesting is that word blameless can also be used in talking about one's physical attributes, one's genetic code, and one's markings. Um, I'll give you an example. In the same word that occurs in Exodus uh, 12, verse 5. I don't have it there, unfortunately. I was supposed to. But Exodus 12, 5 talks about the, the, the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. And he says, you will take a lamb that's one year old, a male without defect. And he has to be the best of your herd. So the description of the Passover lamb is to be blameless in pure, pure genetic code. It's the best of the flock. Now, when people read this verse about Noah being blameless, right after the sons of God coming into the, the daughters of men, many believe that they're actually saying this, that Noah's line, his genetic line, was genetically pure. He was perfect compared to his generations. He, the, the, the sons of God did not infiltrate his line, and therefore he became, uh, that's why God also had favor on him. So just to give you those two options, it could be blameless in morality or blameless in genetic line. He didn't get mixed up with the sons of God business. And that's why he had favor. But the other people were corrupt and their lines had become corrupt. Regardless, it won't make a difference in terms of, I think, the outcome of that passage. But it's interesting nonetheless to think about. But let's not forget the truth and the significance of why we're talking about this. We don't want to miss the forest through the trees. Remember, these false teachers are promoting a gospel that encourages complete moral liberty in the area of sexuality. Peter describes it this way in verse 18 of chapter 2. They speak out arrogant words that entice the flesh, promising freedom and not corruption. Do whatever you want with your body, it doesn't matter. There's freedom. You won't be, you won't be judged. There's no, nothing will happen to you. What's Peter's message? Uh, not so fast, church. Do you remember what happened in the days of Noah? Do you remember? And just like in the area of violence, 
I don't have to convince you of the trouble our society is in. The abortion rates tell it all, or tell a big picture of it. Every decade, we see a progressive movement towards being a carbon copy of the days of Noah. We're not there yet, but we're moving in that direction. And remember last week in the sermon I mentioned that in the Greco-Roman world, one of the clearest indicators of whether one was a Christian or not was what they did with their body in the sexual arena. Perhaps now, more than ever, this is still the case and will be the case for our young people and us growing older. What we do with our bodies in the sexual arena is a great testimony to who we love and serve and what we believe and who we believe in. But again, if we go astray in this, and many of us have, there's forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ. And I love this verse in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. It's a beautiful, beautiful verse. It says, Don't you realize that those who do, not, who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our Lord. Such were some of you, but you've been washed and sanctified and made new. There's forgiveness found in Him. Finally, the fourth reason why God had enough with this known world was their despising of authority. We pick this up in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. God spared, did not spare the world because not only were those who indulged in the flesh, but also those who despised authority, verse 10. The authority Peter has in mind here is not totally clear. I'm actually going to have to probably deal with this in next week's sermon a bit. But it's pretty safe to say that the major area would be denying the Lordship of the Jesus Christ. And for them in that day as well. I mean, the context in chapter 2, verse 1 of our letter says that they denied the master who bought them. What's that? It's to deny his authority. If you deny the Lord as master, you're denying his authority in your life. And here's the thing about this church. We know this. When a person denies the authority of God and who Jesus Christ is to us, he is no longer the moral law giver in our lives. When you reject him, he is no longer your standard of morality. He is no longer your moral law giver. What happens then, a vacuum occurs, and it has to be filled. And now it gets filled with your own version of truth, the culture's influence, and so on. So really, you, you, you fill it yourself. You become your own moral law giver, and whatever society uh, offers you at that time, you pick and choose how you want life to work. And God said this in Judges 17.6. He makes an interesting declaration because Israel was in huge trouble. And listen to his words. He says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Because there was no king, no authority, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Our culture, I wouldn't say we respect authority, would you? We basically pick and choose and put together a jigsaw puzzle of our favorite things that we believe in and favorite, favorite people we want to listen to. And again, because our governments aren't functioning in the way um, the Lord desires, we're in a bit of trouble again. 
Again, we're not as corrupt as the days of Noah, but we're moving progressively in that direction. Peter's message to us, God will judge the rejection of his authority. He will follow through in the end. He's not asleep. He's not idle. Let me finish with this. I want to show you God's heart in all this, though. Because you think, man, what a wrathful God. This is crazy. Like He's just like a hammer. Listen to his heart in this whole thing. 2 Peter 3.9 says this. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some counting slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all those to come to repentance. See that? He's patient. Some people go, why isn't he judging everybody now? Because he's patient. He wants everyone to come to repentance. He wants to give everyone a chance to, before they die to, to hear his name and to hear his message. He wants none to perish. None. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Proof in point in Genesis 6. Do you notice that phrase there? Um, verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. That's not a reference to chronological age. He's not saying a man's not going to live for 100, is going to only live to 120 years old. He's saying this. I'm not going to strive forever with men. I'm going to destroy the world. But I'm going to give them 120 years before I do that. And I am actually going to give them 120 years to repent. And make every effort to repent. That's what he wanted. And that's why, did you notice in 2 Peter chapter 2, what did you know was called? A preacher of what? Preacher of righteousness. So he's going around for 120 years before the flesh saying, Everybody stop. Your ungodly ways of living, your ungodly ways of worship, turn to the living Lord. Have the same relationship with Him that I do. And if you don't, He's going to judge you, but that's not who He is, first and foremost. He wants you to repent. He's going to be patient. He's going to give you 120 years before this happens. Please turn to living God. But if you don't, He'll judge you. This is the message of Peter. Or sorry, Noah. He's given him 120 years. God could have taken him out that day. He says, Noah, give him 120 years to see if anyone will turn to me. That's the heart of the Lord. Not, not only this. He, he, um, the preservation of the genealogies allowed the message of, uh, not only Noah, but the message of, of God to get out there. This is so cool. This is the genealogy from Adam. I want you to know something. Let's see if you can follow my train of thought here. The beginning of each bar graph, at the, on the left-hand side of each bar, represents their birth year. At the end, of, on the right-hand side of each of the bar graph, represents their death year. If you take a line from, so Adam in the top lives to 930 years old. If you drew a line straight down from his death year all the way through, he would intersect every single person on that board except for Noah. So Adam, Adam lived to 930, Noah was born in 1056. Lamech, Noah's dad, was around for 56 years before Adam died, because he died in 874. Here's the point. That's 10 generations. Adam was alive the entire time until one generation before Noah was born. God used men like, do you don't think Adam was telling the world and preaching truth throughout those whole years? The world's contained in one area geographically. The message of the Lord is getting out there, getting out there from his descendants. And people are just turning away from God, turning away from God. 
So he's got the preacher of righteousness for 120 years saying, repent. He's got Adam's influence in the world saying, you should see what happened to me when, I, when, when God had to redeem what even I did. And so on and so forth. Adam died before the flood. Otherwise, he probably would have been, well, he would have been on, the, on the wall as well. At least we think he would have. Or on the boat, I should say. Yeah. You see God's patience, his, his, uh, the way he gets his word out there. And finally, his pain over death. Ezekiel 33, 11 says, As sure as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, he says, turn from your evil ways. Why will you people die? The heart of the Lord is turn, turn, turn. Judgment is his last resort. But he's got provisions along the way for redemption and freedom from sin. There's so many lessons I could give you. And uh, I'm just going to give you two. Because I know the dialogue will just bring forth stuff. And I sound like a broken record. And you're like, I don't, why do you repeat these things? I already know these things. You've told me a hundred times today. Well, repetition is key to learning. Number one lesson that Peter doesn't want us to miss. God will bring judgment on all, God, on all godly, ungodly people. I mean, that's the problem here. The false teachers are saying, come our way, follow us. And he says, many will follow. And Peter's like, don't do that. Do you understand what happened in the days of Noah? Noah went around saying, don't do that. They didn't listen. And what would happen to them? Please, people, turn. Don't do that. He will bring judgment upon you. Lesson number two. God's heart towards ungodly people is one of patience, though, and a hope for repentance. It's his last resort. It's his last resort. Let the wrath of ungodly behavior fall on Jesus Christ, not on your own moral compass. Don't stand before God on your own moral, uh, on your own morality. Stand before God on the righteousness of the blood found in Jesus Christ. 